What is it that chaps you most? That angers you beyond all telling? That makes your blood boil? It might be those tourists who are coming to Rock City and they're not mindful that you have some place to be and you're already late. You did not factor them into your tardiness. They find it discourteous to travel through the wonders of this creation without paying it mind. You are enraged, hoping they accidentally fall off the... No, no, no. Draw yourself back. But you get so mad, don't you, sometimes? I've read reports of such things. Maybe you're mad about buffoonery in Congress and among your leaders. Maybe you can't stand it when somebody gives you a limp handshake. And you say, no, we're going to do that again. Give me your hand. Mm. Maybe it's when you're talking to some person and they're... They're tapping away and they're not paying you attention. They're on their phone. There's all kind of things you have, pet peeves, things that irk you, things that are distressing and troublesome to you. It's interesting to me for us to consider that because we have an aspiration given to us kind of accidentally as Luke reports about an encounter that the Apostle Paul had in one of his missionary journeys here in the cosmopolitan city of Athens. See, Paul is there waiting. He's been dropped off. He's narrowly escaped some mob of people with an industrialized can of something or another. They were going to open it up on him. And so he got out of there, but his travel companions, Silas and Timothy, are left behind, and he's urged them to come on when they can. So he's sitting there in Athens all by his lonesome, and he's wandering about. He's looking at things. He's observing. He's taking in what he sees. And one of the things you notice, it's a great summary, is this. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. He was distressed. And I don't think it's likely that that means that he was weeping, they couldn't keep enough Kleenex on him to dab at his eyes from the flow of tears. I think it's safe to say that what's being talked about here is he was really disturbed, he was angry, he was bothered. His blood was boiling, he was chapped because he saw something that should not be. See, Anger, anger is this kind of emotion that we have a hard time figuring out, I think, and it's most of us that think of anger as something that's entirely bad, but, you know, anger is, as C.S. Lewis one place said, is the juice that love bleeds when you cut it. Anger is the juice that love bleeds when you cut it, and that's why whenever you have your privacy interrupted, or you have plans for your day, and someone intrudes upon them like those Rock City tourists intrude upon mine when I'm rushing someplace, you get angry, not because you love them, but because you love you. 
You're angry because your self-love has been wounded. It's been cut, and it's the juice that your self-love bleeds when you cut it. But something had happened to the apostle here where he had come into this encounter with this God who had sought him out. And he had this tremendous kind of zeal, this unaccounted for in his soul jealousy that God would be esteemed, that he would be paid attention to, that he wouldn't be pushed to the back of the newspaper, that he wouldn't be shoved out the front door while other gods got smuggled in the back. And so I think what you find here is a hankering for God's hallowing. You want, this is what Paul wanted, he wanted God's name to seem, well, magnificent. He wanted people to know, as he did, the God for whom he was willing to have lost everything because it was so great knowing him. And he found it offensive. He found it troublesome. As any time we love someone and they're not properly regarded. It's instructive to us, I think, because we have a little diagnostic for ourselves to see where we are spiritually. And I don't like it. I don't want you to have too many diagnostics for yourself, to be looking at yourself all the time. But it's instructive to ask, do I ever get angry that God is not being esteemed? Do I ever ever get mad mad that somehow or another the, the one who has claimed me is being ignored by everybody? That his words are being treated as if they're nothing? As if he who breathed the world into existence, his breath is being stolen and used and abused by everyone, and they're giving him no credit. We have a lot of anger right now. Christians have a lot of anger about what's happening in the world. And some of our anger, I think, is, well, some of it is just because we're afraid of losing something. Most of the political anger is a fear of losing something, some, something good that we think we had or have. We don't want it to slip away. But I don't sense necessarily that it's always an anger for wanting God's name protected. But sometimes it is. And it's worth asking ourselves. It's worth looking at ourselves sometimes and saying, have we, when we've grown comfortable with God being ignored and we're cool with that, is that a sign of being an enlightened person or is that a sign of being a completely indifferent person who's in danger? He was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. There is another idea behind anger too. It actually winds up propelling him. He's interested in God's honor, I really do believe. But we learn from the one and only Ivan, who's a silverback gorilla. Do you know Ivan? In a children's story by Catherine Applegate, that Kathy read to the boys during our sabbatical last year, this silverback gorilla has traveled around in a circus. And now he's stuck in a little mall zoo. And he's this giant gorilla in this small space, not being what he was supposed to be. But he says this about anger. He says, anger is precious. A silverback uses his anger to maintain order and to warn his troop of danger. 
when my father beat his chest. And you're like, don't, that looks too much like a gorilla, Eric. The resemblances are too uncanny. Stop this. When my father beat his chest, it was to say, beware, listen, I am in charge. I am angry to protect you because that is what I was born to do. I am angry to protect you because that is what I was born to do. And every mama bear in here knows that sentiment. Everybody in here who's loved somebody enough to be angry at wanting to protect them in some way knows what this is like. And I think when you see the apostle getting distressed that the city is full of idols, he wants God's honor, his esteem to be renowned. He also is sharing... And God's anger for the protection of this world that he made. He'll later say, we are God's offspring. Even the people who don't think of God as father, they've been made by him. They've been sustained by him. They are precious to him. And so God is going to counter any force that sets itself up against people. Even the good things of his creation, if they become the main things, and that's a way, and you've heard us talk about this a lot, and we're not going to go into it a lot, but that's a way of talking about idolatry. He looked around and saw little statues and things made by men in wood shops, carved by sculptors in studios. But we all know that when the Bible talks about this notion of idolatry, it's, it's something that becomes a rival to God. It's very often something that we... Not that we love too much, but that we love God too little in relation to. It's the stuff of your life that you think, if I, if I get this, if I can hang on to this, if I would never lose this, then I'll have good. Then I'll be okay. Then I can live. Then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll mean something. Then I'll be something. And of course, the Bible is over and over and over again, and all the great spiritual authors are forever reminding us, no, 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 no. This is what God meant to be. Anytime something that God made becomes something that you're subordinated to, that you're ordering your life around, that you're letting it dictate what you do and what you think and how you act, it's going to go sour on you. Our friend down the road, Joe Nevinson, has said, whenever a piece of creation gets over a person, And the order is therefore subverted. You never look at that person and say, my, oh my, how they are flourishing. Think of people you know who've been addicted to substances in some way. Or people addicted to Santitos in some way. Don't look and say, look at that guy. Santitos are ruling his life. He looks fantastic. You don't look at a drug addict and say, oh, oh. Man, I can tell you're doing so well answering the call that these drugs are making on you. When the order gets reversed, when something in God's creation becomes the main thing about your life, whether it's one of your kids, whether it's your family, whether it's your work, whether it's how people think about you, and you start to live for that, and you start to assume, well, God's not going to be able to deliver anything of substance to me, which is tantamount to saying all that Poppycock in the Bible about, I will be with you. That's the best I got to offer. That's what God offers in the Bible. That's the consolation. I'll be with you. 
The Bible means for that to mean something. The Bible thinks that's incredible that you get to have God dwell in you, that you get to have God with you no matter what you face, that he can give you a sense of who you are. He can lead you. He can comfort you. He can guide you. He can protect you. He has your future secure. The Bible wants you to think all of that stuff about him. And the second you start thinking that about how you do in sports or how far along the career ladder you get or how much money you're able to make or how many people think you're cool, then, then all of a sudden God's pushed back. And Paul knows, and he beats his chest in anger because he's trying to share God's protection of the created order because he was born to protect his creation. So Paul would say as our first point, you got to get mad. If you're going to live this Christian life and take it seriously, sometimes you really have got to get mad. I used to listen to Dave Ramsey. You ever listen to Dave Ramsey? I used to live in Nashville in the 90s, and when he was coming out on the radio and they would introduce his show there in Nashville, they would say, The Money Game with Dave Ramsey. No, yeah. The Money Game with Dave Ramsey. Financial talk with an attitude. And Dave... People would call in. How you doing, Dave? Better than I deserve. How can we help? And as people would talk to him about their lives being submerged in debt, the crisis of their relationships because their relationship to money had gotten broken and they were, they were running after more and more things, they were drowning in debt, these people would be calling in despair and he would give them the, his prescriptions. Use only cash. Use a snowball, debt snowball. Get rid of your credit cards, etc., etc. And every now and again, people would call in triumph. They'd do plastic surgery, which is not some sort of fancy augmentation to their body. They'd cut up their credit cards on the air and there'd be hoopla and celebration. And these people would tell stories of how they had gotten out of debt. And Dave would always say the starting point for all of those people getting a right relationship with money, and finding when they got that right relationship going that all manner of other things started gelling better too. He'd say, sometimes you just got to get mad. And think about change in your life. Has it ever happened where you just got mad? You got fed up? I can't take this anymore? You got mad about something that was happening? He said, I've got to act. The apostle was distressed because of idols. He knew that idols were the destruction of people. Worshiping something that is nothing. Worshiping something that has no power to deliver, no power to save, no power to console, no power to renew and renovate. When you can worship the one who is making all things sad come untrue is destructive and silly. God was made to be honored. He was angry about that. People need to be protected from themselves. They need to meet this unknown God. So he got mad, and his anger drove him. So you got to get mad. What do you got next? Well, you got to get going. Here we go. Verse 17. So, after he was distressed to see the city full of idols, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as those in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. We find... The apostle going first to the synagogues, which was his custom. These were the people who'd be expecting to hear something about Messiah, who would be poised and ready to have some intellectual furniture to move about, to adjust so that they could understand this God of Israel enfleshing himself and being 
the inauguration of a new administration for the world. Well, but then during the week, he went out to where people were at leisure, where people were discussing ideas, where they're thinking about what makes the world go and what they're for. And it was there as well that he began to let people know about the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. He let his anger propel him. This crude energy source, he let move him into action, which is part of what it's for when you love somebody and you feel anger that they're being destroyed, that they're being duped, that they're being hoodwinked. It moves you into action. But listen to his action. It's not angry action. He's presenting people a way to know God. He's telling them good things. He thinks of Jesus entering the world as good news. It's a proclamation. It's become the way he started to see how everything in the world fits. It's It's the sun by which he sees everything else. And he knew that by God raising this man from the dead, it changed everything. And it was valid. It was something that had to be shared. There was a story told recently in the newspaper about our President Reagan in 1981. Some of you remember this. Some of you don't know what 1981 is. It was a year prior to your birth, some of you young people. But in 1981, our president, President Reagan, was shot. He was not killed, but he was shot. And as he was convalescing in the hospital, this remarkable thing happened. His political enemy, then Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill, came to visit him in the hospital. These are enemies. These are at each other's throat. And Tip O'Neill came in, and he kissed Reagan on the forehead in his hospital bed. And he knelt down beside him as they together recited the 23rd Psalm. His enemy had been injured, and he came to his room, and he kissed him on the forehead. You think Ted Cruz is kissing anybody on the forehead? I don't care about that. But you know what? What a beautiful image that is. And here's what's remarkable to me about it. The Apostle Paul was angry that God's name was not being honored. He's angry to protect people from their own selves and their own defection from God, which is going to be their demise. And you know what he let his anger do? He let his anger lead him to kiss the world on the forehead. To say, you know what you need? You need what I got. You need to come to know the God who made you. You need to come to know who you were for. See, that's what this gospel that we have is. It's a kiss on the forehead for enemies. It's a tender touch. That's how we make God known. The apostle knew his job was to carry the name of God to the Gentiles. He knew he had been acted upon. He had been the recipient of grace. And so while he had this zeal and this anger... His words had been marinated and tenderized with the ministry of reconciliation. And he had reconciliation to broker kisses on foreheads for enemies. And it seems to me that we have this amazing opportunity as a church when we think about ourselves as the carriers of the name of God, which we preached about a few weeks ago. As the people who, like Paul, who 
wandered around the city and said, oh, 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 you worship an unknown God. Let me make him known to you. We are the community that Jesus has inhabited. We're not the only one, but we're one for this place. Where he has written on with a sharpie on our hearts that we are his. And the wet cement of our hearts, he's put his initials. We belong to him. And we know him. And we get to demonstrate him to the world. And I'd urge you to think about that as the apostle demonstrates in this preaching. We can do that in our preaching. There are people, there are people around you who are confused. There are people around you who are in a great state of dismay. There are people around you who, who don't know what to do. And you know what they've got going for them? You. Us. You are owned. You've been claimed by Jesus. You can bring him to them. There are lonely people around us. I spoke to someone recently who said, I wish... They wouldn't just tell me they were praying for me. I wish they would come over and hug my neck. Mm. Dave Hansen says a similar thing. He says it's very hard to believe for lonely people. And there are a lot of them. And they're probably not here. (laughs) They're stuck somewhere. And they're forgotten and they're not making any clamor or noise. It's very hard for lonely people to believe that God loves them if not one person who bears the name of Jesus will spend an hour with them. We are the people that get to make known, to get to publish the glad tidings of the gospel that we have been kissed on the forehead when we were enemies and we can go out with our words and our deeds to explicate that kiss to explain it to people, to let them sense it with our touch and with our service and with our listening. Bonhoeffer says in one place, God shows his love for us not only in giving us his word, but by lending us his ear. Some of you think, I don't know how to talk too good, but you know how to be someplace, don't you? Could you listen to somebody in the name of Christ? It's one of the joys of thinking about church planting is we get to plop a consortium, an embassy that makes Jesus known that will, that will be a kiss on the forehead of the community of Trenton just as we hope we will be that here where we are and in Hinkle and throughout all the places where you go to work and to play each day. You got to get mad and then you got to get going. The going is to make known this kiss of God. But there's another part of it, and I think it's worth saying for our moment, is that it's very easy to imagine that the things that we believe about Jesus, that we believe that, as Paul says here, that he's the one who made the heavens and the earth. He's been raised from the dead. He bore our sins. He's bringing about a new world. He's establishing this rule of God. He's going to eventually conquer all his enemies. He's going to judge the living and the dead. It's very easy to imagine in a way that this is kind of a personal thing. And it is personal, but it's not private. It can't be private or only private. See, Leslie Newbigin says in one place or another, when I say that I believe something, I'm not merely describing my own feelings or my experience. I'm affirming what I believe to be true. 
So that's why the apostle could stand in a public place. This was not just something he kept for himself. This was not something he just talked about among friends with like minds. This was something he brought out into public because he thought it was a public truth that had bearing on everything. He says, when I say what I believe, I'm affirming what I believe to be true, and therefore what is true for everyone. The test of my commitment to this belief will be that I'm ready to publish it, share it, share it with others, and invite the judgment and, if necessary, correction of others. If I refrain from doing this, if I try to keep my belief private, it is not a belief in what is true. Now, this is an instructive word as well, isn't it? Our moment says, you hear people say this, follow your own truth. The oprification of all things personal and spiritual. Don't listen to Oprah on these things. If something is true, then it's really got to be true for everybody. And the apostle brought these things into the public square because he thought they had something to do with every person of every ethnic group, of every size and shape and socioeconomic class who had breath. If you don't have breath, it's not relevant to you. But if God has loaned you breath, you got to find out who gave you the breath and why he did it. And the apostle claims to know. And so he says, you got to get going. I gotta, my belief can't just be for me. It's got to be for others. And to the extent that I believe that this is the, the story that's shaping all of reality, then I've got to be willing to share it with other folks. And they've got to be able to see it in my life that I'm living in a way that accords with this reality. And of course we'll fail. And we fail, we admit it. We're free to do that because we've been kissed on the forehead by our enemy. You've got to get mad. You've got to get going. And lastly, you've got to get God. Verse 26 and 27, Paul is at this meeting of the Areopagus where people did nothing but stand around and talk about the latest ideas. And he addresses them. Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Now, what you worship is something unknown. I'm going to proclaim to you. He's making known what is unknown. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this. He put people places and he put them in times so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. You got to get God. The conditions of your life right now and the conditions of the life of people around you are prime. There are not better conditions for seeking God. He has determined the places where people live and the times in which they live so that from those places and in those times they might reach out and find Him. Seeking Him. Seeking to know the one who loaned Him breath. See, the Apostle had this sense in his head and the Bible is a symphony of voices that ratify what he's saying. 
that for years and years and years, here's been God's intention. He's intended that when, that when a Middle Eastern family at the end of harvest, they sit around their table, their Middle Eastern equivalent of the Golden Corral, and they eat their mutton chops and they let the wine flow. So much so that they got to unbutton their top button afterwards in their pants. Or their, you know, their sorry or whatever, I don't know. There's no button on that, is there? His intention was that every pleasure would be like breadcrumbs for Hansel and Gretel leading them back to the one who dispensed the pleasure in the first place. Every parent who ever welcomed a child into the world and erupted with joy when they saw something coming from their own flesh and they held them close and watched them grow, every thrill of watching that was meant to be breadcrumbs to lead you back to the God who gave you that, to worship Him, to honor Him, to adore Him for giving such wonderful things. Every time the rains came, which meant the crops were going to flourish and grow. Each morning after the earth went dark, the blackout from the heavens in this ball of energy fueled by the love of God, came up into the sun to energize the earth, was meant to cause eruptions of alleluias to the one who made it happen. And for years and years and nations and nations, no one did that. It's not so much as a text message of thanks to the true God. And God says, for all that time, I've overlooked it. I've overlooked your neglect. I've overlooked your ignorance. They didn't know. I've overlooked it. But now, he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he's made himself known in this person of Jesus, and he's appointed him to be a judge in this last day of judgment, and he's shown that he's the man because he raised him from the dead. And Paul thought this was something that everybody needed to know because it was an inducement to seek this God who had been seeking them when they weren't thinking of him. It's a wonderful thing to think. When we're sitting here, 2013, NFL games coming on today. It's pretty outside. You're getting sleepy and hungry. It's amazing, isn't it, to think that this many years ago, God was entering the world to make provision that you could know him? But see, there's a, there's a problem because some of the people who heard him, they, they scoffed at him. They They call him a babbler. They sneered at him. And we live in a time, and it might be happening to you here where you're sneering at some of this stuff, or you're saying, and at least in a humbly agnostic kind of way, I I don't know about any of this. This, How do you know? I mean, there's a lot of people making a lot of claims to what what things are true. How can you know any of this? And if you're really honestly asking those questions, I'm, I'm really glad you're here. You're showing some good faith effort. By being in a place where people are trying to learn about these things. Trying to live these things. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Ask God himself. He'll show you. But there are, I fear, there are also around us and in our room, there are slacker seekers. You know what a slacker is, right? A slacker seeker is somebody who has the pose of, well, how can you know about any of that? But really what's happening is they're standing at a distance from everything. And won't give themselves to anything. 
David Brooks says in one place in America right now, I don't know if America has a leadership problem. It certainly has a followership problem. Vast majorities of Americans don't trust their institutions. That's not mostly because our institutions perform much worse today than they did in 1925 or in 1955 when they were widely trusted. It's mostly because people are more cynical and they like to pretend that they are better than everything else around them. Vanity has more to do with rising distrust than anything else. Vanity. It's worth asking yourself, am I facing life with a sneer? Am I looking at things with a jaundiced eye? Am I standing above everything as its critic and therefore able to be pupiled by nothing? You'll be untouched that way and you'll remain God's enemy and you'll miss what you're for. That's what repentance is. You've got to admit somebody somewhere knows more than you do. That's why Walker Percy said the most important article that Soren Kierkegaard wrote was called The Difference Between an Apostle and a Genius. He said a genius is somebody that can find out something, that can figure out something. But an apostle, an apostle is someone who had something revealed to them. They got hit upside the head. Whoa. They got hit upside the head with a reality, and now they're out on the evening news broadcasting what is. And once they've said it, they say, now it's on your head. I've told you the truth, and I have the authority to tell it. Will you respond to it? Our world, and we, are filled with a certain kind of vanity that makes us the critic of everything. I'm not going to participate with that church. They don't do things the way I want them to. Make sure you're not, make sure you're not assuming that you alone have all the answers to everything. Are you the critic of your government, of your school, of your employer, of your boss, of your wife, of your children, of your church? Is there a common theme there? You're the critic of them. God did this so men would seek him. This is why he put us here, that we would seek him, that we would know him, that we'd look for life from him. When we have life, we'd, we'd enjoy it from him. And if you do this, you know, if you, if you get mad and you get going and then you get God, here's what's going to happen. You are, I'm just going to give you kind of a freak permission slip. You're going to be regarded as a freak sometimes. And it's helpful to know that. The apostle was, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear more about this. This is how it's going to work. Well, some of us are afraid to be thought to be a freak. That's why I feel so bad on Sundays every day, every Sunday, because I feel like a freak after I do this. You'll feel like a freak at school if you tell anybody about Jesus. You'll feel like a freak if you stand up for anything about what you believe about Jesus or you try to share it with somebody. You're just going to feel like an idiot sometimes. Good. Steve Brown used to tell us, if you don't have at least 10% of the people in your church mad at you at any given time, you're probably doing something wrong. Because he said 10% of the people in the church are neurotics anyway, so they're going to be mad about something. Well, you know what? If we don't have somebody mad at us at some point, if somebody's not thinking we're kind of weird at some point, we're probably doing something wrong. As we frame our lives to this reality that Jesus is our king and provides our marching orders, we've been kissed on the forehead by our enemy, that we care about the promotion of God's name, 
Well, some people are going to think we're weird. Some of our practices are going to seem freaky. And it's going to be deeply offensive to people. As one of my, one of our deacons told me, he said, in the outdoor world, man, these guys will do anything for you. They'll be so hospitable with us, be so caring. You mention the name of Jesus and they'll show you to the door. It's true. If you don't ever get shown to a door, then you probably don't believe this stuff very much. It's probably not shaping you very much, but God means for it to because it's supposed to make you full. It's supposed to frame the way you see your life. I'll close with this. Maya Angelou, the great poet, was once asked, how did you become such a great poet? You know what her response was? I became such a great poet because when I was a little girl, when I was a little girl, every time I walked into the room, my daddy's eyes lit up. That's how I became a great poet because when I was a little girl, every time I walked into the room, my daddy's eyes lit up. You know, so when your daddy's eyes light up and you become a person who is accepted, adored, affirmed, delighted in, it sets you free to risk. It sets you free to take chances. It sets you free to notice things. It lets you not be so inhibited. It lets you know that someone's got your back. You see, the apostle knew because he'd been hunted down by Jesus that now he was the object of God's affection. That his father's eyes lit up when he walked into the room. And it set him free to represent him no, no matter what came to him. His daddy's eyes light up when he comes into a room. This is what our gospel says. That inexplicably, <laughs> for some reason, God looks at you and he thinks you're wonderful. He wants you. He wants you to be his. He's taking care of everything that stood against you. Nailing it to the cross. Now you're before him without blemish and without accusation. And now we have an opportunity knowing that. Knowing we've been kissed on the forehead and held as the object of delight in our Father's eyes to go out into the world. To get mad. And let our anger, when his name is not promoted and people are under the sway of false gods, to let our anger make God known. To publish what we believe so that people will get God. We want them to know the kiss of an enemy's forehead. We want them to know the Father's delight when they walk in the room. Amen.